the nature of your emergency. Good morning, police, fire, military, and families, and to everybody who is listening in on the Talk to Living podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Walton, joined with my new friend from D.C., Mr. Sean Carbon. <laughs> Sean, how are you? I'm doing well. Good morning, Ashley. I'm really happy to have you, and I, I just wanted to publicly say this because I know the show is booked out for such a long time, and I looked back at the dates, and you actually booked this with us back in July, and mm-hmm. October 17th is finally here, so I just wanted to thank you for your patience and for not canceling or rescheduling at the last minute when there was such a time length in between because that always really sucks, so thank you so much. Nope, you're welcome. Happy to be here. We are doing a live giveaway. Good morning. Good morning. So you guys need to drop your comments down below. Whoever comments the most within 24 hours, I'm going to send you a one pound Halloween candy mix bucket with a white skull trick or treating basket. So I think we should let Derek Beasley win that one. That way he could take that out trick or treating because something tells me he's probably going to take his dogs out trick or treating. Now, Sean, you are a former NPR cabal correspondent and an author of Passport Stamps, which I was just checking out the reviews for. And um, I'm going to read one of them when we get into talking about some things, if if that's okay, because you seem to have a great deal of accolades from people who have known you, people who currently know you. Good morning. Good morning. And I also listened to a couple of your interviews, and I'm hoping that with this one, we can maybe dive into a little bit more of the mental health side of things Mm -hmm. that I haven't heard you talk about before. So um, I hope that's okay. Sure. Now, if you don't mind telling us just a little bit about how you got into your career and good morning, good morning, and how that led you to where you are now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, my path has been really kind of kind of winding in in life. Um, I came to journalism almost accidentally. I'd actually been working in the music business in the Boston area as a producer and engineer and realized I needed to find something a, a little bit more stable work wise and um, saw a listing at the NPR station in Boston for a technical position. So I got hired there. Uh, based on having audio production skills and then was immediately thrown into a daily talk show and had to produce episodes and book guests and and do all of the you know the heavy journalism side and a couple months after doing that 9-11 happened and so you know obviously it's sort of a you know momentous event and something um that that for me as a young journalist i felt and you know a need to really dig in and cover that and uh, saw journalists out in Afghanistan in, in the fall of 2001. And, you know, just like a lot of people signed up to to join the service after 9-11, there was a certain sort of calling to do more. And so I realized I wanted to eventually get out and do, uh, you know, on the ground journalism in, in Afghanistan and places like that. And over the course of the next bunch of years, gradually worked my way up to that so that in 2007, 2008, had joined a, a radio program that was starting to send me to places like, uh, yeah, I started with Sudan, Colombia, and then uh, Iraq, uh, Lebanon, Syria, and uh, eventually ended up uh, two and a half years in Kabul as the, the last NPR correspondent who was based there. And then at the end of 2014, shut the office and ended up uh, back in the U.S. And 
at that point, trying to process, you know, seven and a half years of running around in, you know, very difficult places and seeing uh, a lot of horrible things and, um, you know, basically trying to trying to process that and reintegrate into, uh, you know, being back in, in D.C. And so that's sort of generally the the journey and and what uh you know what i chronicle in the book is how you know how i got into that work how i didn't really know what i was doing early on and a lot of the mistakes that i made and then um you know seeing the changes in me over time as i spent more time uh around uh post-conflict around uh, hostile environments and you know over time dealing with the uh, you know losses of friends and colleagues and things like that so it you know gets gets into a, a pretty heavy journey yeah I, I really appreciate you sharing that and i want to thank you for your service and what we're talking about i feel like i've never heard anybody talking about before if any of you have questions for sean go ahead and drop them down below if we don't get to them then we will um make sure to tag you sean and you, you just talked about something and, you know, going into you've been to over 80 countries. So going into some of the worst of the worst in terms of actual war zones and mm -hmm. not being an armed service member, you're you're the dynamics of that are incredibly interesting. And what you just said was that you had to learn that reintegration. So mm -hmm. there are programs, some better than others, of reintegration back in a civilian life for an armed service member. But for somebody like you, were there any kind of services or did you have any help when you made that kind of transition? At the time, no. And, and so that's uh, this is a, a key point that I'm, I've been trying to stress in, in you know, both the book and in conversations is that, yes, I, you know, there is an infrastructure for for veterans. There is there is a VA. There are nonprofit organizations. There's. I don't, you know, I don't think there's nearly enough, but there is emphasis and there are th services that people can turn to and there's recognition about the difficulty of coming back from, from downrange. Um, but for journalists or other civilians, you know, you think about it there, how many people there are who are journalists, aid workers, development workers, diplomats, others who are also in these areas uh, dealing with some incredibly difficult circumstances, some who you know survived attacks, some who lost colleagues, and it's really up to their individual organizations to deal with any type of of you know mental health care or reintegration. And certainly, when I came back, there was still very little recognition of that. Um, at the time, NPR basically had a some type of counselor who was on call. And so when I got back, they said, look, if you need to talk to someone, there's a guy you can call. And, you know, of course, no one's going to follow up on that. I mean, we see that, you know, across the board in, you know, military or first responders. If it's, if it's purely voluntary, if, you know, we're all, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm, I'm good. I don't, I don't need anything. And, uh, you know, I just didn't realize at all at the time when I got back how affected I was. And it played out over years in terms of, you know, really understanding how, how different I, I was on the back end and how hard it was to relate to people and how I got into making bad life choices and things like that. Um, so, you know, there's a little bit more awareness today, but there really isn't anything on the civilian side that's kind of like a VA for civilians who work in, in these environments. And so that's, uh, again, a key part of what I'm trying to raise awareness around. It's very important and there's a lot of value to be had in a conversation like this. So I think I thank you for sharing that. And for anybody who may not know, can you just talk to us a little bit about the similarities between somebody working in a civilian capacity in a war zone like you have 
and that of a first responder or an armed service member? Yeah, I, th- I think there is, you know, enormous overlap that um, as I have conversations with people and talk with veterans and first responders, we all kind of see, you know, how much there is in common. You know, in, in my case, I mean, yes, I did, uh, you know, a lot of embeds. So I had time where I was out, you know, on p- patrols and on bases with with the military. So I'm you know sort of surrounded by the same you know, danger and, and concerns. But even just living, you know, living in Kabul, I mean, anytime you heard a loud noise, you know, my job wasn't to, to go, you know, in the basement and seek shelter. It was to go get as close to that noise as I could. Um, you know, so I remember one time, you know, driving home from an interview in the middle of the day in Kabul, and we hear a boom and see smoke rising. I just turned to my driver, I'm like, go, go over there. Um, you know, again, that same as first responders, you run to the boom. That's, you know, that's the job. And so then you're, you're, you're there, you're watching, uh, you know, the, the Afghan forces uh, try to deal with the attack. Uh, then afterwards, you're trying to interview anyone involved in it, victims, etc. So, you know, you're, you're consuming a lot of the same trauma and, and danger. And, you know, in my case, yeah, the, the main difference is obviously, I, you know, I wasn't armed and it wasn't my job to pull a trigger. Um, but you're you're still dealing with a lot of the same stresses and trauma and sort of questions about you know why are people doing this to each other things like that and um, you know when you when you come back again you you do feel different from other people there were some mm-hmm. folks in Kabul that I was friends with who had moved to DC before I did so I had a little bit of you know what I refer to as a tribe of people uh, who I could relate to. Um, but I think, you know, that's part of it that's really important is, is having that community of people. But the other, the other thing I'll just say quickly is in 2020, um, when I was just kind of personally hitting bottom and looking around trying to find, um, you know, some type of therapy that really dealt with the circumstances I had been through, you know, I found that it was programs for veterans and first responders were the kinds of things that were, were the right thing. Um, but I couldn't get into those because I hadn't worn a uniform, even though, again, there was tremendous overlap with the experiences, with what I was dealing with on the back end. And that also just kind of opened my eyes to this issue that, uh, you know, I can sit with with veterans and first responders and we can talk and share things and, and have a tremendous amount in common. Um, but I, you know, as a civilian can't access certain, you know, care or programs or, or resources to try to, to, you know, work through some of that. And so uh, that, again, a key thing that, that I'm trying to do is help, you know, sort of build that bridge. And, and um, a lot of vets who I've talked to when I describe some of my experiences are like, wow, that, you know, that was I went through the exact same thing. And so, again, I think it's you know important to to build that recognition and at a minimum, at least, you know, communities can support each other, uh, you know, let alone, as I say, trying to find more resources for civilians who have had these kinds of experiences who didn't specifically wear a uniform of some kind. Yeah, it's a massive gap in the system that I'm surprised nobody has spoken out about sooner, which means that um, there's probably all the more individuals who are out there just silently coping with this. So I'm I'm so proud to know somebody who identified a problem and is now working through it 
Um, if the military could not see the impact on our military personnel, they definitely wouldn't see the impact on the civilian personnel mm -hmm. and wouldn't see the need yeah, to help our civilians. Absolutely. This is one of those selfish Ashley questions, Sean. So sure. we, we see the content, we see the, we see the newscasts, we read the articles, and that's like the, the finality, the aftermath of some mm -hmm. of the work that you've done um, as a war correspondent. But what what is it actually like? What is a day in the life actually like when you're out there? Yeah, and, and that was sort of a, a big part of the motivation of the book is exactly that point is people, <clears throat> people hear the story, they, you know, they read the story, um, but there are days and hours and sometimes weeks of running around someplace that, that go into it. And, uh, you know, some of it's kind of mundane running from one government office to another, trying to get permissions, trying to get approvals to, to travel to places. But then, uh, you know, there's just all kinds of crazy things. I mean, one of the things that people don't realize is how difficult it is to travel around in some of these places. And so mm -hmm. some of the things that we have to do to get from one place to another and hiring, you know, sketchy drivers and getting into cars that really aren't safe or well-maintained or driving through places where there really aren't roads. Uh, you know, I joke about the fact that as, as a journalist, you break all the rules your parents told you as a kid. Number one is don't get in cars with strangers. Well, as a journalist, the first thing you do is get in cars with strangers. Um, you know, with the first time I went into Libya from Egypt, um, we took a train up to from Cairo to Alexandria and ended up in a bus station parking lot. And there were a bunch of guys standing around just said, Hey, who wants to drive us into Libya? And, uh, you know, guys chatted with each other. One guy's like, okay, I'll do it. And we negotiated a price with this random guy in a parking lot and got in his car and drove to Libya. Um, so, you know, the, the, <laughs> there's a sort of a high high risk factor in that regard. Um, and, uh, you know, so getting around places, but then, you know, navigating checkpoints and, you know, reading local dynamics, trying to figure out, is it safe to go to the next village? Who do you, you know, do you have to have a, a local person come with you to talk you through the next checkpoint? So, you know, tons of that sort of like ground level intel and and just reading situations and finding the right people and things like that to be able to to get in and around and uh, you know certainly in my case lots of situations where uh, I was very near to something happening that I didn't find out till afterwards it's like oh actually the the people after you at that checkpoint got robbed or this or that happened so. Uh, you know, there's a tremendous amount of luck that goes on, but the key thing is uh, what we call fixers, who are sort of the local journalists who we hire, who know the area, the community, the language, the bureaucracy, all those things. And those people really are critical to getting foreigners in and out of places safely. And those people take, you know, even more risk than than a lot of the the foreign correspondents do. But uh, yeah, it, it, you know, it's a lot of improvisation, uh, a lot of talking your way through circumstances of, you know, trying to get a, a permit to go somewhere, trying to find a flight, trying to find a car, getting in strange boats and rivers in Colombia. Again, you know, some of it on the back end, it, a lot of it's it's fun and it's great stories. But in the moment, you're like, this is probably a bad idea. I really hope, uh, you know, we get a good story out of this. So, Sean, does the fixer act as essentially your escort? 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they are, you know, they're really your, your, your partner. I mean, you, you know, if I'm going into a place, say I'm, I'm going into the Congo, I'll reach out ahead of time, weeks ahead of time to find a fixer. You know, you go through networks of other journalists, who do they recommend, get in touch with that person, start talking about where you want to go, the reporting you want to do. Uh, and they'll, you know, advise you, okay, you're going to need this permit. You're going to need, uh, you know, a car to get here. You're going to need this. So they, you know, they really handle logistics and in many cases they, they translate for you. Um, so, you know, I, I talk a lot about the fact that, you know, fixers are, are really the backbone of international reporting and, you know, most of the time we go into a place, we do some reporting and we leave and they stay there and they work with the next person and they take, you know, constant risk. And unfortunately, it's it's local journalists uh, who are the ones who are arrested, um, you know, injured, killed in far greater numbers than the international correspondents. And so, um, you know, these people deserve tremendous amount of credit for for the risks that they take and uh, and what they do to help everyone get to, get the news out. Yeah, I'm truly sorry that you were overlooked. And I thank you for being that voice for those overlooked and for the silent. Thank you for your role played. Absolutely. And so, OK, now my question is going. You have a fixer. They they tell you all of the ins and outs, where to go, where not to go, how to get there. So are they armed and do you have any kind of form of protection for yourself being that you yourself are not armed? So, no, I never had an armed fixer. Um, the only time there's one time when I was in Baghdad in I think 2009 and I had a driver and I did have a security guy in the car, you know, plain clothes and he was armed and then a fixer. Um, so the four of us were, were driving around Baghdad uh, but we were all, you know, we were in a nondescript, you know, an old Mercedes that looks like every other car in the streets in Baghdad. And, and the vast majority of time I spent in places, it was in, you know, sort of a local car, local people, you're trying to blend in as much as possible. Uh, there was one time in Libya for a few days, um, the driver we were, we were using, he was sort of a, a Libyan rebel and he was armed and a little twitchy, but there was, you know, at that time, you had to grab whatever driver you could because it was during the fall of Tripoli. So all the journalists are pushing into the city and competing for, you know, the local talent of who's available to drive and fix. And so, uh, you know, we did have a few days of, of this guy. And, and as soon as we could, we replaced him because uh, we felt he was more dangerous than anything else. But uh, uh, no, you know, I never I, I felt more uncomfortable uh, for example, there were times I would travel in UN vehicles or State Department vehicles if I was going out to see, you know, their projects. And, you know, these big white vehicles to me were just advertisement to, to anyone. It's like, hey, foreign people target this. So it's always much more comfortable in a beat up Toyota Corolla than, than anything else. Yeah, being so naive to this topic, and, and I'm glad you're shedding light on it, my interpretation, like when you see that, the final cut, right? Somebody just, a, a published news outlet publishing your story, for example, you would have thought that somebody like Sean is out there being escorted by an armed guard the entire time, ensuring your safety. So that that actually is incredibly surprising. And um, 
harrowing actually. So, so yes, thank you. I, I echo that sentiment of whoever said that down below. And I know we don't have tons of time. I feel like I can keep, keep asking you a million questions. So we might have to have yeah. you come back on if that's okay. But what, what took you then from then coming home, reintegrating back into civilian life after being in a war zone and then figuring out something isn't quite right. And then going from that transition into you know, doing what you needed to do to feel the way that you wanted to feel when you did come back into civilian life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I got back, I knew, uh, I knew I was changed and I knew things felt different and I felt difficulty um, relating with friends or family or people who hadn't had similar experiences. I mean, same things that, you know, you hear from veterans, they feel, you know, isolated, they don't feel comfortable with friends and family. People ask them questions about their their service that are you know uncomfortable to to talk about. So a lot of those kinds of feelings, and a lot of the just the the sort of you know chronic PTSD of um, you know walking around the streets, can't have anyone behind me, uh, loud noises startling me, all all that kind of stuff. And so I was sort of aware of that. Um, but really, it was, you know, over the course of years, uh, you know, shortly after I got back, I got into uh, gambling. I ended up in a relationship with with an abusive partner. I mean, just sort of all the cliches of things that that happen when they're they're just sort of not right and thrust into circumstances that they, they can't really process well. Um, and so, you know, that just kind of continued for a period of time. And then, I, you know, I was in a good job. I was seemed functional on the outside, but um, was still processing being away from that world that I'd worked in for years. Um, and, you know, in 2020, during COVID and between the isolation and frustration on the job, everything just kind of came to a head. And I, I was just in a really, really bad place. And and that's why I say I started looking around for for some help and saw that there were programs for first responders and others, but there wasn't something directly that uh, that made sense to me. And you know, I just finally kind of pulled back, realized you know I need to I need to write my book now. You know, something I'd thought about for years, but I'm like I need to get this out. I need to process the experiences again, um, just kind of work through things and, you know, get this out and have this as kind of a step toward, uh, you know, healing and, and doing something with all of it. And so I basically spent 2021 and early 22, uh, writing the book. And then, um, you know, that, that point came back into, into the, the workforce, uh, the book finally came out last summer. And so, uh, again, you know, really trying to, to the call to action is really trying to raise more awareness around mental health for civilians who who work in these environments. Um, and, you know, just more broadly, just add more weight to the conversation around mental health in, in general and try to remove stigma. I, I do work with the organization Movember, uh, which is a men's health organization. They they focus uh, originally. They started with prostate cancer, but then got heavy into mental health and suicide prevention. And uh, so again, you know, doing things with them. But um, you know, the, the nice thing is that at least I, I just had someone a week or so ago tell me that after reading my book, uh, he decided to seek help. Uh, his his wife had passed away um, within the last year, and he was sort of 
toughing his way through things. And after reading my book, decided, no, I, I can't, you know, put on the brave face. I really need to kind of sit down and, and get some help. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. And so, um, you know, it was just one sort of small recent example of, of reaching someone and seeing, okay, this can make a difference, telling the story, trying to remove stigma for men in particular to, to seek mental health care uh, and, and make this just part of health in general. Yeah, for sure. I was not aware of personnel not being protected and or having a fixer. I thought that the media or TV stations were taking care of that 1000%. That was exactly what I thought too. So uh, my final question here, Sean, is what mm -hmm. is next for you? <laughs> Um, so, you know, right now I'm still immersed in, uh, you know, doing, doing book publicity and trying to get this messaging out. There are some organizations that I'm trying to have conversations with, uh, that deal with, uh, trauma and mental health and journalism, uh, you know, trying to continue elevating this conversation. So, you know, really right now, the, the short-term focus is continuing to have this conversation, you know, raise awareness and see, um, see what opportunities come out of it to, to try to build uh, and make, you know, mental health care and treatment part of the regular process for, for news organizations, for aid organizations, and, and things like that. Okay, so everybody who is listening to this, if you could do us a favor and share this episode with somebody who might value from being able to hear it. Your testimony is the most powerful tool to help others, 100%. Sean, I see your book in the background. Do you mind just holding yep. it up? I did see that we can check it out on Amazon. Yep. I know that your website here is passport-stamps.com. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Such a cool book. <laughs> I really, really like that. Yeah. And, um, yeah. We had, we had fun. Um, uh, you know, it started with a scan of my actual passport and then uh, we, we, you know, had fun with rearranging the logo to make it a little bit more thematic and all that. But, uh, but yeah, passport-stamps.com is the, um, the book website and passportstamps.net is my sub stack where I also write, uh, about foreign policy. And I write some, some of the stuff, you know, when I wrote the book, it was twice the length of a, of a book. So all, all sorts of material that didn't end in the final book, I've been sort of dribbling out on Substack. So all the weird stories about taking cargo flights in South Sudan to, to get to reporting locations and things like that are, are all in there. Wow. Well, yeah. Thank you for dropping that website down below. Thank you so much for the work that you do, the work that you're continuing to do and for enlightening us and really sharing um, some things that I think none of us might have even considered before, but it's something that we definitely need to increase the conversation around. But stick around because I do want to talk to you a little bit more. <laughs> so thank you, everybody, for bit. tuning in. If you have any more questions, make sure to drop them down below. Thanks.